Other than that, I'm going to invite you here this morning to worship, and uh, let me begin, if I can, by just simply reading uh, what comes on the front page of your uh, bulletin there, and then I'll lead us in a call to worship before we pray. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their heart and is ordinarily produced through the ministry of the Word. This faith is increased and strengthened by the same means, that is, the preaching of the Word, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer. So we encourage you this morning to prepare to receive not only the Word, but the sacraments to the help renewing and increasing of your faith. Let me call us to worship, and I'll lead us in prayer, and then you join me in the Lord's Prayer. From Psalm 95, come and exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Come, let us praise his great and awesome name, for he is holy. Let's go to the throne of grace and then join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity, the privilege to be able to come uh, to people who've been changed. Father, the miracle each time we meet of knowing that no one else in the whole universe could change a heart like you do, that you're able to recreate us, that you're able to take what is old and make it new, that your son and his righteousness, he is the one that is able to fulfill the covenantal promises and to bring us into that relationship that we long to have with you. Lord, it's here that we're able to express those things together, to be able to, to meet and to fellowship like no other place. And so, Father, as we gather together today, we ask that you hear our songs that we sing. We ask that you open our hearts to receive and our minds even to receive the words. And yet, Lord, we ask you to help us boldly come to the throne of grace to receive mercy as we need it in the time of need. And it's here together at the grace where the throne brings us that we can pray saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's confess our faith together. I will read the question and then let's all respond together. Which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Please join with me now as we pray together this congregational prayer, which is in your bulletin. Let's pray. Most merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned in many ways against you and your commandments. 
We confess that we have not believed in you. We confess that we have not erected idols in our hearts and bowed down and served them. We confess that we have misused your name, that we have sworn falsely or lightly by it. We have not professed your name or kept it holy as we ought. We confess that we have not kept the Sabbath holy, nor have we rejoiced in the work of six days, but have grumbled against it and been negligent. We confess that we have not honored our parents. We have been disobedient to them. We confess that we have not respected life, but have murdered in our hearts, venting our anger against our neighbors whom we are to love. Therefore, we beg of you, O Heavenly Father, that you would graciously forgive us these and all our sins. Keep and preserve us henceforth, that we may walk only in your ways and live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, our Savior. Amen. And receive now this promised assurance from 1 John. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you come to God with no status of your own, with only your sin, looking to Jesus, turning from your sin, be assured that through Jesus and what he did for you, his claim on you, that your sins are forgiven, that you are a child of God. Be at rest. Amen. You may be seated, and I hope that you brought your Bibles with you this morning. Thanks to our worship team who faithfully leads us each week and prepares our hearts. And uh, I invite you, as you're turning to 1 John, it's always the things you overlook. I was sitting there listening to Nick's assurance that he gave us, and I thought, man, that's not 1 John. And uh, so if you're looking for that, that's actually John, the gospel. We're going through 1 John, and so those are easy mistakes to put in there. So if you're looking for that assurance of pardon, that is actually in the gospel of John and not 1 John. But we're working together through 1 John, and I want to challenge you this morning as we're following along to again be patient with me because even though John is a very small book, it is a very powerful book about obedience. Now, it is not so much like James, as we have said, where we're comparing our works to God's grace because keep in mind, this is all about God. John is writing to Christians who have stepped aside or are claiming to be Christian, and there is a difference. We live in a different world today where many people want to just say, look, we all belong to the same thing. You worship God your way and I worship God my way, but we're all still worshiping the same God. And that is the farthest from the truth. John writes and he says, you cannot have fellowship with God if you're not coming through Jesus Christ, his son. And so I want to challenge you this morning on a title that I've chosen earlier. I hope it's not upsetting to some, but what has Jesus done for me? It's the question everybody wants to know that's coming to know what, what it is that we believe. You're telling me that I need to have my life changed. You're telling me that I can only do it through Christ. You're telling me that God's upset with sin, that there's alienation between us. Well, let me ask you this. What has Jesus done for me? And that's what John's actually writing about here in just a few verses of chapter 2 about the importance of dealing 
with what it is we need. Now, again, I'm going to read this morning from the New English Translation. Again, I'll explain as I go why. Uh, I've been giving some of you the opportunity to study your Greek as we're going through and some of your context and your cognates and your words that belong together. So how many of you love that part of study, right? Raise your hand. It's, the, it's that alliteration of words that go deep. And uh, I'm probably boring some of you to death. If you snore loud, I'll call your name. But I want you to see that in the catching up of translations, why it is that some versions use different words for good reason. It is not always true that when one translator puts a different word in English, it's because they have totally misunderstood the original word. We are still working together 1,000 years, 1,900 years, 20 years, 2,000 years later of when it was written to be able to say, how is it in its context? How is it used today? We can't go back and ask the people who wrote it what they meant. And so people try their best through all the texts we uncover. And so bear with me. This morning I want to challenge you before we take the Lord's Supper that you understand what it is Jesus has done for you. Because that's why we come. That's why we celebrate. It is our desire to be close with God and to have fellowship with Him. And John has written in the first part of the chapter, we can have fellowship The amazing thing is that when you take your sin and place it in the context or the scope of darkness and light, it is only in Jesus Christ that you realize your life still has hope. Because anybody that understands that when you sin and you are separated from God, and the guilt in which you have inherited from the time in which Adam has sinned has alienated you from the proper fellowship with God, you might actually ask yourself, well, then why go on? If I know this is going to end in a fiery trial, distanced from God, separated for all eternity, what's the point? John writes, well, let me tell you what Jesus has done for you. Let me read it, and then I'll preface it, beginning in chapter 2, where John leaves off. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. May God bless the reading of his word. A couple verses here. Let me take you on a journey that you may not sin. It's the expectation of God. I wish I could tell you differently this morning, but I want you to write this in the subnotes of your mind or your heart or your text, and that is, it is God's expectation that you not sin. You cannot belittle that, you cannot change that, and you cannot say that because God is gracious and he understands who we are, that he realizes we're going to sin and that's okay. That is not true. His expectation for you is to be holy. He even writes us and says, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am what? Holy. Translated into the New Testament, dikaios, which is the word for righteousness or holy. It is the word that we are separated apart and different for a use unto God. John is writing us here, if you wish, and he says, I'm writing these things to you. The third time he's given us a purpose to be able to say, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's God's expectation for you. To work out your salvation in fear and trembling. To grow closer and closer to Christ as you walk with him. To get to a point in your life where you're sinning less and less. That's the goal. 
I know we've lived for the last quarter of a century in a time of grace, which I appreciate. And I don't want to this morning say in any way, shape, or form, we do not serve a God of grace. But I do want to say sometimes I think we've demeaned it, belittled it, and took advantage of it. Because we live in an era now where it's just all about grace. It doesn't matter how you live or what you do. The truth of it is God loves you, he accepts you, and his grace covers you. That is absolutely true. And then I give you Paul's writings. But how can those of us who've died to sin, what? Still live in it. There is a difference. John is saying, he's writing the whole letter to say there is a difference between those of us who claim to have fellowship with God truly and those who are walking in their own ways and saying they too have fellowship with God. You live your life the way you want it. I'll live my life the way I want it. And I'm sure God will work it out. Folks, no. There are expectations. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Lame man that he healed there in the pool, John chapter 5. Do you remember when he came to him by the pool and he was trying to get in? And he reached down and he healed him. Do you remember what Jesus' final words were to the man that he healed and changed forever? Go and what? Sin no more. He didn't say, oh, may the grace cover you. Now enjoy a life of licentiousness. First time ever he could jump up and go do the things that others were doing. He didn't just say, well, I expect it from you now. I know that now that you can get up and go be with others, you're going to sin, but that's okay. Don't let it get you down. Just live your life to the best it can, and we'll cover things as we go along. That's not what he said. Oh, I also love the story that so many debate about where it should be placed. I'm glad that the Bible's inspired by God and not just men. Because it was in God's wisdom that the Holy Spirit said, I want you to keep the story. For men, we wrestle about where to put it, but it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Can't imagine being caught in a sin like that. And yet to have the one who died for me reach down, mark in the ground, and say, if no one judges you, I judge you neither. But what? Go and what? Sin no more. Oh, I am not here this morning to tell you that God's grace does not cover you. And I'm not here to say that you can find sin, that God's not going to come. Yes, God's grace is astounding. And no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've committed, God's grace abounds. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But does that mean that's what God expects from us? That we're allowed to now turn the tables and say that because God is gracious and knows we're going to sin, it's okay that we sin? Listen to how he writes these verses. It's a tough letter. He writes this saying after he has just said, folks, we can have fellowship with the Father. If we say we have sinned, then we make him a liar. And then he says this, my dear children, I'm writing these that you may not sin. It's the subjunctive case. He knows that you're going to, but I'm still writing it. In the Greek, he's telling you, I want you to not sin. I want you to not do wrong. I don't want you to seek out to be different and to be alienated from me. And he says this, but if anyone does sin, and he knows you're going to what? Sin. So if you're here today and you say you have not sinned, you've made God a what? A liar. And if you say you have no sin, you're a what? You're a liar. And if you say your pastor's no good, you're a what? You're a, I'm trying to get you to fall in that trap there that I could get you to say that. No. Folks, he's got us convinced that you're either going to live a lie or you're going to live the truth. 
And yes, you're going to make mistakes, but that doesn't mean you're a liar. Do you see, the best way to overcome sin is to confess it. The best way to realize who we are in grace is that we will fall. We will have to be picked up. We will make mistakes. But that doesn't mean that's our goal. We are expected to be holy, to be different, and to change. But if you do sin, listen to this. There is one that we have that can help us. Children, this wonderful phrase of terminology sets the context. I'm writing to you, small children. He's telling you there is a heavenly father that cares for you. I know we live in a generation where that's not always true in your home. And I know that sometimes it's hard to project what a great godly father could be if you didn't have that. But please don't misunderstand the scriptures. God is a caring, loving, compassionate father. He is not standing at the portals of heaven just waiting for you to make a mistake where he can throw down the lightning bolt, bring it all to an end, and prove that he's the one that's going to do this and it's going to be his way or no way. That is not the picture John paints. It's the picture he's painting of children who come to their father because they have failed. All right, men. When your child comes to you, I know, Dad, it's not what you wanted. I know you told me I shouldn't. I know I wasn't raised this way, but I have sinned. Father, how do you respond? It may just be the difference in the picture of whether or not you truly know the Father or you don't. Because to respond in such a way that would bring judgment, harsh decisions, to escalate the problem, to exasperate the issues, to bring further separation to prove a point, has nothing to do with how the Father responds to us. What happens when we sin? When our children fail and they come to us, I love the way it's looked. God is not shocked by our sin, folks. He's writing to you because there's nothing you're going to do that's going to shock God. He's been everywhere. He is everywhere. He sees all things, knows all things, and accomplishes all tasks to bring about his purpose. There's nothing you're going to do that God's going to have to stumble around for a minute and catch his thoughts in order to handle what's gone on. He's ready to bring you to the throne of grace and to allow you to see what a godly, loving father does if you're here this morning and you have sinned and you have felt the world judges you everybody looks at you different god's probably not going to want to use me you've got the wrong picture of what john writes about the father we are here because the door is open and we're learning what it is that god has now done for us in Jesus. Follow along, write these things down. Now that the door is open, the veil's been there, God's not shocked, we're open. And John writes, if you have sinned, raise your hand, if you have sinned, here's who he's writing to. Listen to this. I write these things that when you have sinned, you have an advocate. I'm going to give you three things. I'll try to do it quickly this morning so that we can get through. There's only a couple verses. One of them, we're going to talk about his perfect life the life that was perfect that he brings to us. We're going to look at the death that was propitiatory. And then we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, who's our paraclete. It's amazing that we are covered on all grounds. Listen to what Jesus 
has done for me. I'm writing to you that you may not sin. If anyone does, we have an advocate. I'm going to take that last, the role of the Holy Spirit as, or Jesus Christ as he comes through in the end now. The righteous one. I want to take it first. The one that is perfect. The life that is holy. Write that down. What has Jesus done for me? He's given me a life that is perfect. That's what's being transferred to us. It's the righteous one. The perfect one who has never given in to sin, never failed with temptation, never let Satan overcome. He is the one who lived the life that God would expect of his children. Hear me clearly. Jesus lived the life that God would expect of his children. Now we are fallen and we're sinful. It does not lower the standard. For any one of you who've ever had a child that has done anything wrong at all. We have eight children, and so far no one's done anything wrong yet. (laughs) At least in my eyes, right? But when we have done wrong, we don't say to those children, well, listen, this is how we need to correct this. But you know what? Since we know you're not going to keep that standard, let's just lower the standard, and I won't expect you to do that anymore. How many of you parents, when your child didn't clean their room, said, you know what? Well, if you're not going to do it, let's just not expect you to do it anymore. Does it make sense? We come before our Father in heaven. He doesn't say, well, I see that you've sinned. We, know, we'll just, we just won't expect you to live clean anymore. Just go ahead and sin. John writes, he says, no, we have a perfect example of the one who is here. This perfect one, or righteousness, which is the word that he's used, is set before us to govern what happens when we're in the presence of God. Why do we need Jesus and this perfect life? It's because when we stand in the presence of God to overcome what has happened, it's not based on our life. You don't go before God with a slate of all the great things you've accomplished and all the times that you've not sinned. You don't have this uh, resume that you're bringing before the Father to put yours amongst everybody else's to see who God's going to take first. You come before God in the presence of one who is perfect. So that no matter what it is that you need, you have the one who has been everything that God has ever desired one to be. And he can be yours. You see, what he has given us is that he's given us a life of righteousness. Because if we understand the truths of scripture, when Jesus died for us and the Holy Spirit brings us to that conviction. And we rely upon Christ alone for our salvation. Do you realize he covers us? No different than when the sacrifices were placed on the altar and the the blood that would drip down on that altar from the animals that were without blemish. It would so cleanse us, refine us, and change us so that we could be treated as that animal was before it gave us his life. Oh, yes, in the presence of God, we have one who has given us a life of perfection, of his overcoming of sin, the times that he was tempted his battle with Satan in the wilderness, and to remind us that he stands in the presence of God fully holy. That's our standard. That's our standard. What has Jesus done for me? He's given you the standard that should never be compromised. No matter how many times Satan has won, no matter how many times you've given in, no matter how many times you've faltered, fallen, or failed, the standard remains the same. If it were to change on us, what would we ever strive for? There's nothing better than the consistency and purity of a holy God. 
to put before us a standard that we can always try to obtain. And we can, but we can't do it ourselves. We can become the Holy One in Christ. What has He done for me? He's given me a life that is perfect so that I too can be covered in Him. But it goes beyond that. It's not just the life that is perfect of the righteous one. He himself, and here's the translation that you have in the second verse that I've chosen from the New English translation. It says this, what else has he done for me? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I'm using that translation because I understand the word hilasmas. It is the Greek word hilasterion, if you wish. It's used several times, but the noun only used here in 1 John. It is the word that is evident, if you wish to say, of this appeasing of God, if you wish, the cleansing and the forgiving of our sins. It all goes before the presence of the Father. And so you might be reading a translation this morning that says he is our propitiation. Let me tell you what propitiation is. It was actually taken from the pagan world, translated many times over. And that's why the newer translations went, if you're in the Revised Standard or some others, that use the word expiation because they wanted to get away from the pagan concept. Let me give you the pagan concept. The pagan concept was this, that there are gods who are angry with us and those gods need to be appeased and we're going to have to appease those gods and offer them something so that they will no longer be angry with us. And so we will propitiate those gods so that they'll no longer be angry with us. There's a lot of truth to that, is there not? The word expiate was used because it is the same word that is translated hilasthemai all throughout the Old Testament translated in the Septuagint, always referring to the mercy seat of God. Every time used to the mercy seat which means it is the place in which the sacrifice would come and bring cleansing and healing and forgiving. So the one who is in the presence of God is bringing a propitiation so that God would no longer be wrathful against us. And it is also the one who is expiating, or if you wish, forgiving and cleansing us of our sins. But if we're not careful, one of the writers made the comment I thought was kind of comic. He said, if you're not careful with expiating our sins, what people realize is we're being disinfected. So that's what that word really means. When you disinfect the dishes, you clean them off, you wash them, and you sterilize them, and then they're ready to be used again. That was kind of the understanding that God would do for you, that when you would come into his presence, he would disinfect you. Your sins would be expiated, and we would propitiate God. But when you put all of that together, Let me remind you of something very important. God is not the object of propitiating. Never in Scripture. He is not the God ever resembled in Scripture who is standing at the mercy seat ready to bring judgment down upon you and that He's angry with you. He's willing and He doesn't want to forgive you and He wants to see your life in tragedy if you wish and He's just waiting for the moment and the opportunity to get you. And then you bring something to God so that He is appeased. Let me give you why I like the translation which many have now used. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why? Because the atonement meant that we could be one with God. That not only is he propitiated, that he is no longer, if you wish to say, holding us accountable for the wrath because it's been dealt with. And he's also cleansed us, forgiven us, and if you wish, disinfected us so that we could be used again. 
He's also said we have fellowship. And if you put all that together into the one Greek word, hilosmos, that's why you have translations that say those who propitiate, those who expiate, and the ones who have said he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This morning, what has Jesus done for me? He's not only given me a life that is perfect, he's given me a death that propitiates. Why do I use that word? Because in the biblical example of propitiating, you did not bring a sacrifice to God. Do you know how God is appeased? Catch this, folks. If God were an angry God, would he have given his son to be the sacrifice so that he could be appeased? So that he could be in relationship with you? Folks, be careful how you use pagan understanding in biblical concept. Because we don't have a God in scripture who's waiting to judge you. We have a God who has stepped forward to propitiate himself. By giving us his only begotten son. So that he could be received to himself so that we could have fellowship with him. Now I ask you, just what part do you play in that? That's why it's important to understand what has Jesus done for me? He's given me a life that is perfect, but he's given me a death that propitiates the Father. It comes from God. It's amazing. It's God's love who gives God's Son so that we can have fellowship with God. So John writes and he says to you this morning in the same way. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, what do I have to give God? What is the sacrifice that I bring? What must I do more to be saved? And Jesus' response is no different than to Nicodemus. You want to be right with God? Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and what? Come Follow me. I want you to be like Jesus. When you come into the presence of the Father, Father, what do you want me to do? I want you to be more like my son. I forgive you. I've cleansed you. I've disinfected you. And I've given you an offering that takes away my wrath on your sin. What else do you want me to do? Do you see it comes clear back even into the book, if you wish, of Leviticus chapter 17. Go back and read about the sacrifice because it always relates hilosmos, hilosterion, to the mercy seat and the sacrifice. And even back in the Old Testament when the sacrifice was given, do you remember who came up with the sacrificial system? It wasn't some smart man created by God. It was God himself that said, if you want to be right with me, I'll allow you to bring the sacrifice that I give you. And he describes it. It must be perfect without blemish, your very best, and I'll set it up for you to bring it to me. You see, all along, it is not us earning God's favor. It is God loving us so much that he would give his only begotten son 
that he would no longer bring his wrath to those who believe. What has Jesus done for me? He's given me a life that is perfect. I can trust that there's nothing short of Jesus Christ covering me. He's given me a death that propitiates. It has atoned for my sins. I can be one with the Father and have fellowship with him, which is what this whole writing is about, those who's claiming fellowship. You, this morning, can have fellowship with God. He's not only propitiated yours, but catch this phrase, for the sins of the whole world. Writing to those, I truly believe the context, you can go back and read it, is not basing on whether or not his sin is effective or efficient and whether or not it could or it would. I think he's just simply writing to those who are Christians saying not only did he atone for the sacrifice of our sins as Christians in fellowship with God, but he atoned for the sins of every Christian everywhere anywhere at any time that ever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Whatever you've done this morning, ask yourself, what has Jesus done for me? He's given you a life that's perfect to cover you in righteousness and make you holy. He's given you a death that propitiates, that takes away the wrath of God on what is deserved in your life. He's cleansed you, forgiven you, and restored you. And finally, listen to this, the last part. I'll take it in the first part of the verse that he says, if we have sinned, which we have, we have a what? We have an advocate. Write this down. We have a paraclete. Yes, it's a life that is perfect, a death that propitiates, and we have one who is our paraclete. The translation here is the word advocate. Some have reduced it to the term helper. It is that courtroom assembly type atmosphere in which is used in the New Testament that when one comes alongside you when you're in trouble, there is one who pleads your case. There is one who is able to stand up and defend you for what it is that is necessary in the presence of the judge. The word that is used here, paraclete, only used in John in this reference. Everywhere else used, referring to the Holy Spirit. Catch the importance of this. The paraclete is the Holy Spirit who helps Jesus. In the book of 1 John, the paraclete refers not to the Holy Spirit, but to who? To Jesus, who is our helper. So as the Holy Spirit helped Jesus, so Jesus helps us. Whoever lives to intercede for us who is called alongside us in the time of our trial. He is the advocate for us, the merit of his own, not ours. Listen to this. When you go to court and the one who pleads your case, he defends your actions. Do you realize Jesus in the presence of the Father does not defend to make you holy at all? He doesn't try to say, Father, he has not sinned. He doesn't try to say, look, he didn't mean to sin. He doesn't stand before and say he didn't realize he was sinning. He doesn't defend you by trying to say that you are not the sinner you've been made out to be. Do you know how Jesus defends you? He says, I want you to look at my perfection. I want you to look at the death that propitiates. He defends you not based on your works, but on his. It is the advocate that comes alongside you so that when the announcement is there and the pronouncement needs to be made, you are now just and righteous, not because of what you've done and not because what you've been defended on, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now you realize what he's done for you. 
He not only lived for you, and he not only died for you, but he lives to intercede for you every day of your life. But when you sin, we have an advocate already righteous in the presence of the Father. Let me say this quickly as I can. When you come into the presence of the Father, is it so that you can ask him to be your father? No. You're not coming to God to not be uh, disowned, reaffirmed he's your father. Folks, back to the children analogy that when they come to us and they've sinned and they come into your presence, folks, your children do not sin and come back to you men and ask to plead their case that you would still accept them as their children, which happens in some homes. It is the sin that separates us from our children that when they come back to find the throne of grace, the father who would care, the one who would receive propitiation, the one who would cleanse and disinfect and purify. It is the child that comes home to their father that doesn't come into your presence and say, Father, I have sinned. Can I still be your child? That makes no sense to a godly parent because they're always your what? Children. You see, when you enter into the presence of the Father, Jesus does not say, let me plead their case so that you can be his father. They're not pleading for sonship. You can't be saved again. You can't be re-adopted four or five times. They're in the presence of the Father, and what Jesus pleads for is on the basis of his perfection, on the basis of his propitiation. He now asks you to show forgiveness. And love. The difference between the God of the Bible and the gods of the pagan world. How many times, parents, do we realize just how much we sin when our children finally muster up the ability to come into our presence and feel like they have to ask us to be our children? rather than asking us to forgive them. God is not saying, come into my presence so you can be resaved. Come into my presence so that you can be re-justified. He's saying, come into my presence so that you can be cleansed, so you can be forgiven, and you can be used. Come into my presence forever. Oh, Christ intercedes for us continually. I read this years ago, sticks in my mind, couldn't tell you who wrote it. It's not my words. But they're the words that are written by many and copied down in many commentaries. I'm not sure where they came from. But sin is inevitable. And sin is inexcusable. But in the presence of God, with a perfect sacrifice that's propitiated us, sin is forgivable. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, it's time men to become the picture of a godly father. 
who no longer holds their wrath against those that come into their presence, but are willing and ready because of what Christ has done for us to demonstrate that love, forgiveness, and care. Yes, sin can be forgiven, and Romans 8 makes it clear. Turn with me in your Bibles or mark this down. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 8. It's the section on we are more than conquerors. But who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. So then who could separate us from the love of Christ? He didn't say, so then who can make it through the vengeance of the Father? Who can make it through that harsh, bearing wrath of God? And who's going to make it through the judgment of an almighty vengeance out to get you? No, he said, because of Christ. No one can separate you from the love. If you're here this morning, commune with the Father, confess your sins, and experience the fellowship. The fellowship that comes because of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for cleansing us. Thank you for accepting us. And Father, more importantly, when Jesus said it was finished, that he was finished with what he needed to do to propitiate, but that he was not finished with us, that he is still there for us, at your right hand, pleading our case, on his merits. And no one can separate us now from your love. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated and I'd ask the officers as they come forward. Let me just quickly say that we're going to pass out the elements this morning. If you're here visiting with us and you are a member of a church in good standing that practices the preaching of the word and the discipline and upholds the marks of the church, then we invite you to take with us we would encourage those of you who are making that decision that if you are not sure this morning that you've never accepted Christ, you've never called upon the name of Christ, that you not take. For I will read some scriptures together in just a moment. But this is a time for the body of Christ to commune, to share together what Christ has done for us. As we hand them out, I'll ask that you please take the bread and hold it so that we can partake together in just a moment. As they're passing it out, let me read, if I can, from 1 Corinthians, just while they're passing. Now, in giving the following instructions, I do not praise you because you come together for the better or for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must, in fact, be divisions among you so that those who are approved may be evident. Now, when you come together at the same place, 
you are not really eating the Lord's Supper. For when it is time to eat, everyone proceeds with his own supper. One is hungry and another becomes drunk. Do you not have houses so that you can eat and drink? Or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God by shaming those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I will not praise you for this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night which in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I ask that you take just a moment to bow your head. And as the plate is coming by, to ask yourself, what has Christ done for me? Have I received his body for me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we come together, we can, in the solitude of our own hearts and minds, reflect on what you have done for us. For whatever misrepresentation we've been given, for whatever misunderstanding we have of the truths, Lord, we ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us. And that in your presence, as we commune together, we realize it is not about our works. It's what your son Jesus has done. And it was in your grace and your love that you gave us Jesus. This is not about us. This is about fellowship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He gathered together with the disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. I ask now that as they pass out the drink, that you would please take and hold it until we can all drink together. As they're passing that out, let me continue. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Let me paraphrase. Each time you do this, ask yourself, what has Jesus done for me? Every time in remembrance of me, for every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim his propitiation. You proclaim the expiation. You proclaim the atoning sacrifice for your sins in Jesus Christ's blood. For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So a person should examine himself first, and in the same way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For the one who eats and drinks without careful regard for the body eats and drinks judgment against himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we realize the sacrifice of your son was for us. We also realize that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no cleansing. That, Lord, it's not our blood that you want. It's not our lives to be given as a sacrifice. Lord, you want us to be the living sacrifice. You want us to go on and live the life to the best of our abilities that your son has shown us. But we thank you that it is his life and his blood that covers us. 
so that we can have fellowship with you. In his name we pray, amen. After eating, he said, this is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Father, again, we thank you for the cleansing, the propitiation of your son, the expiation of our sins, the atoning sacrifice that has brought us into a relationship with you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Give you a benediction. Paul simply said, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And God's children said, amen. Amen.